Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. And then she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the term for tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the risen Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Don't the choir sound great this morning? There's just something about bells and brass and choir that brings an Easter celebration to life. One of the most famous choirs on the globe is King's College Choir in England. And it's a boy choir, and they're famous for their crystal clear ethereal sound. I heard this week that their chaplain has announced that the choir has been forced to make some changes. Take a look. Yes, well, earlier this year, the choir began webcasting services. And this has been tremendously popular, but the complexity of the regulations involved mean that it really is no longer practical to have young boys singing in the choir. And this is a great shame because high male voices have been part of the choir sound for more than 500 years. 
Uh, after a lengthy consultation process, during which we learned that the surgical solution was surprisingly unpopular with the board of scholars, somebody in the chemistry department came up with a very simple solution. And now all we need is a very large tank of helium. And the best part of an April Fool's prank is the element of surprise. How can the pranksters slump along and a prankster string us along until we figure out that we have been the fool? Are you wondering this morning if this resurrection is just God's April Fool's Day prank on the Christian church? Perhaps some of you are waiting for someone to finally say, surprise, April Fools, followers of Jesus have been proclaiming the resurrection for over 2,000 years, but Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It was just a story after all. April Fools. And it doesn't surprise me anymore when people say, well, I really appreciate the teachings of Jesus, but when you get to that part about him rising from the dead, well, that's where you lose me. I just can't believe that it could happen. I'm not surprised because the resurrection is really hard to believe. And it was hard for Mary too. She came that morning to the garden expecting to anoint the dead body. She was there when Jesus was nailed to the cross. She had stayed there for all those hours, those agonizing hours watching him die, a horrible and excruciating death. She must have heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. She stood there at the foot of the cross as he took his last breath and she mostly stood by, most likely stood by as the Roman soldiers pierced his side with their swords to make sure that he was really dead. And then she stood by and watched Joseph of Arimathea put Jesus in the grave. And he was dead. Cold, hard, stiff, dead, really dead. So she, when she came to the garden early in that morning, she came to anoint a dead body to pay her last respects because dead bodies usually stay dead. And she saw the grave clothes there, neatly folded, empty. No doubt she felt empty too. All her hopes were emptied into that grave. And so she didn't recognize him at first. She thought that he was a gardener. That was until he called her name, Mary, Mary. 
The disciples came, they saw that the body was gone, but they returned to their hiding place. And, and even though Jesus' followers were right there and many reported seeing the risen Christ walking around, many of them had a hard time believing in the resurrection because dead bodies usually stay dead. And so we shouldn't be surprised that so many people still have a hard time believing in the miracle of the resurrection. Are we just April fools? Barbara Brown Taylor is a writer and a preacher, and she writes about collecting cicada shells as a child. She's from the South, where they have lots of them. If you don't know, cicadas actually live under the ground for 17 years, and then when God wakes them up, they come up and they begin to come out of their shells. If you've never seen them, they look just like this. She says that she likes cicada shells because when she was a kid, she hung them on her sweaters and sometimes she put them in her hair. Now, I think that's just weird, <laughs> but that's what she did. And she says she did that because she could usually get the prettier, more popular girls at school to run screaming away from her, which somehow evens the score. But she says she likes cicada shells because they were evidence of a miracle that a miracle had occurred. They looked dead, but they weren't. They were just shells. And every one of them had a neat slit down its back where the living creature inside it had escaped, pulling new legs, new eyes, new wings out of that dry brown body, and then taking flight. At night, I could hear them singing high in the trees, she says. And if you had asked them, I bet none of them could have told you where they left their old clothes. And she goes on to say, that's all the disciples saw when they got to the tomb on that first morning. Two piles of old clothes. And that's where many of us continue to focus our energy. On that tomb, on that morning, on what did or did not happen there. And how to explain it to anyone who does not happen to believe it so. Resurrection does not square with anything else we know about physical human life in Earth. No one has ever seen it happen, which is why it happens to remember, why it helps to remember that no one saw it happen on the first Easter morning either. And yet, the tomb is just the cicada shell with the neat slit down its back. The living being that had once been inside of it is gone. The singing was going on somewhere else, which is maybe why Peter and the other disciple did not stay very long. Clearly, Jesus was not there, for he had outgrown his tomb, which was too small for the resurrection. The risen one had people to see and things to do, and the living one's business was among the living, and to whom he appeared not only once, but four more times in the Gospel of John. And every time he came to his friends, they became stronger, wiser, kinder, and even more daring. And every time he came to them, they became more like him. Friends, Jesus invites us to leave the graveyard this morning to move our focus off of whether the resurrection happened or whether it didn't. Because listen, Jesus is calling our names. And when we hear him and follow his voice, we too become stronger, wiser, kinder, and more daring. The risen body of Christ is right here. We are the risen body of Christ. And that means 
is that the love of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, can raise us too. We've been given power to leave our old clothes of regrets, sorrows, pain, shame, and guilt behind like old clothes that no longer fit. It means that God hopes that we will dare to loosen our comfortable grip on skepticism long enough to imagine a new way of life. It means that Jesus has made a way for us to spread our wings as new creations, freeing us to sing a new song as we become more and more like him. Do we dare to risk looking or feeling like fools as we explore what life with a resurrected Jesus could really be? According to Marcus Borg, early Christians would say that Jesus lives, and this is what resurrection life is all about. Jesus lives, and that, to say that was to say that Jesus was experienced not simply as a continuing presence, but as a divine reality, as Lord and as one with God. In the first century, lords were common. When someone was a lord over you, they held their, your life in their hands. They were masters who owned the land over which slaves farmed. And at the end of the day, if you were a slave, your toil only resulted in making the lord richer for everything you grew or would produced was owned by the master. Lords set our agenda and they lorded their power over people. There are some lords who are benevolent who treated people under their care, looking out for the welfare of the whole kingdom. But history teaches us that there are many more lords who live for their own sake, hoarding, cheating, and oppressing their slaves for their own benefits. They are the ones who are always starting wars because their thirst for violence was rooted in fear and an insatiable lust for dominance and power. Their thirst is never satisfied and it always leads to death. And this is still true today. This systems of lords was so prevalent in the first century, it isn't surprising that early Christians would say, Jesus is Lord. And some Christians still say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Now, I believe what we're saying when we say that is that we want to submit to Jesus' authority in our lives. And frankly, life would be better if we all did this, because following Jesus' way and direction would lead us to live a life of love. But I wonder, do people who say Jesus is my Lord and Savior really understand that if Jesus is our Lord, that, that will mean that Jesus will lead us to be servants? It seems to me that far too many Christians want to be lords ourselves. And isn't it interesting? Jesus wasn't really a lord at all. Sure, Jesus deserves to be called lord. After all, he said that he and God are the same and everything that exists belongs to God. And yet, the term lord is a bit troubling because I'm not sure that Jesus would have claimed it for himself. Everything I read about Jesus in the Gospels tells me that he didn't ever lord power over others. He walked with people, not over them. He stopped to tend the needs of the poor. He embraced lepers. He hung out with the least and the left out. He wasn't concerned about achieving any status. His behaviors were the exact opposite of a lord in the first century. He was a servant, humbling himself even to the point of suffering death on a cross. 
So when early Christians proclaimed that Jesus is living and Jesus is Lord, what are they really saying? Perhaps they were saying this. Jesus is alive and real in our lives. And unlike the Lords we serve, he is willing to suffer with us. And unlike the Lords of this world, he didn't create or demand any pecking order. And unlike the Lords of this world, he doesn't sow favoritism to the rich and the powerful. Instead, he lifts up the lowly and humbles the proud. Unlike the Lords of this world, he eats with sinners and tax collectors. And he gives us courage to admit our failures because he forgives with an extravagant generosity. He feeds hungry people and heals those who are sick and loves outcasts so completely that we will trust him with our very lives. This is the kind of Lord we want to follow. This is the kind of Lord who goes with us even unto death. But the mystery and promise of this day is that death isn't the end. There is more. For you see, the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis, which literally means uprising. And as you know, uprisings are designed to upset the status quo. Have you ever considered what it would mean if we who call ourselves followers of the risen Christ really embraced resurrection as uprising? I wonder, are we willing to let resurrection upset our status quo? For example, we are so busy running the race of life that many of us find that our souls have a hard time keeping up. Is this true for you? It is for me. Jesus wants to upset our status quo. Jesus says, be still, know that I am God. Do not be anxious. Are some of you discouraged and afraid? Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am with you. Some of you have experienced the death of a loved one and you are lonely, or you are tending a loved one who is in hospice, and you are scared. Is your status quo today mired in grief and sorrow? Jesus said, peace be with you. I will not leave you orphans. I am resurrection, and I am life. Death will not have the last word. Are you experiencing loneliness this morning that feels so heavy it is crushing your spirit? Because Jesus says our loneliness will never have the last word. Jesus loves us too much for that. Are you struggling with a sense of failure? Our past failures and our disappointments will never have the last word either. Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus didn't blame, didn't shame, didn't condemn. He turned and he called him by his name and he said, Peter, if you love me, Feed my sheep. Here is the good news, my friends. No matter what your status quo is today, no matter what my status quo is today, God is always creating a new uprising of possibilities for resurrection life. But make no mistake, uprisings are not just for us personally. Resurrection brings liberation and possibilities for new life for the whole of creation. 
Living as the resurrected body of Christ in this world means that we will embody Christ's way in the world, living to create uprisings of justice, mercy, and love over and over again, even when it's not popular. Let's be honest. The powers and the principalities of this world will always demand that we give our allegiances to them and all the ways that they seek to shape the world. And for this reason, uprisings are never easy because peaceful and purposeful resistance to the powers of darkness always puts us at odds with the status quo. And in fact, following Jesus, the way of Jesus, the way of love, the way of truth, we will often be called fools. I was inspired two weeks ago when 70 teens and adults from this church walked in the march for our lives at the state capitol. We were there. It was really cold. And I stood there on that ice and that snow and my legs were tired and my feet were cold and, and there was a biting wind and we stood there together as the church watching thousands and thousands of students march by, 20,000 students I believe it was, and I wondered, God, God, when will we see an end to this violence? How it must break your heart to see your children move to march in the streets because they fear their lives. Oh God, how long? How long must we wait for your justice to be made known? And when I got home, I found out that some of our legislators, those who have the power to make changes that may help stop, end, and stop and end the violence, they were mocking our children and youth as they marched. And frankly, it was discouraging. We know that Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth and blessed are the peacemakers, but at that moment, it was so tempting to give up hope. But then I remembered something. It is in the midst of the darkness of night that resurrection occurs. And then these words of Martin Luther King came to me again. He said, I refuse to accept the view that mankind or humankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Friends, the unarmed truth and the unconditional love is the same truth and love of God that raises the dead to new life. And though there are times when all seems lost, God's love will always have the last word. Do you believe it? That doesn't sound convincing. <laughs> Do you believe that God's love will never end and that death will never have the last word? Do you believe it? Yes. That's better. Friends, whenever we see or wherever we see the light of truth and love pierce the darkness of our grief and struggle, resurrection power rises up again and again to give us hope. 
whenever and wherever we are the body of Christ, bringing that hope into the world, rising up to meet the needs of a broken world, we become resurrection hope in the world. And we and the world are transformed. This is the good news we celebrate today. So the question really isn't, friends, do you believe in the resurrection? The question for us all today to ponder in our hearts is, do you believe in the God who can raise the dead? This is why we celebrate the cross, the death of Jesus. The resurrection is a sign. It is a signpost of God's love. It is a sign of God's power in the world. Do you believe in him? Or is it just another April Fool's Day joke? Believe it or not, we are in the midst of an uprising of God's love. And that's no joke. Jesus lives right here, right now, in and through us. Christ is risen. Christ is risen indeed. Amen.